Let's continue our journey through 2 Thessalonians, looking tonight at chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, principles related to the return of Christ. Principles related to the return of Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Got it? Okay. Paul says there, As to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we beg you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as though from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the lawless one is revealed, the one destined for destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. Do you not remember that I told you these things when I was still with you? And you know what is now restraining him so that he may be revealed when his time comes. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but only until the one who now restrains it is removed. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will destroy with the breath of his mouth, <clears throat> annihilating him by the manifestation of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is apparent in the working of Satan, who uses all power, signs, lying wonders, and every kind of wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion, leading them to believe what is false, so that all who have not believed the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness will be condemned. But we must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. For this purpose, he called you through our proclamation of the good news so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by by word of mouth or by our letter. You know, there are two topics today that a pastor can speak on, and if he speaks on either one of these two topics, he can be assured of having a listening audience. The one topic would be the will of God. Consistently, pastors will tell you when they speak about the will of God, uh, people are very curious about it. In fact, it's one of the biggest things uh, uh, a minister is asked about. Uh, people will approach him and want to talk about the will of God and how they can discern uh, the will of the Lord for their lives. Well, the second topic is the second coming of the Lord. You speak on that and you'll have a ready audience. Now, this is the situation that Paul is addressing here in chapter 2. And we need to understand that the Thessalonians were fearful. 
in chapter 4 of 1 Thess Thessalonians, they were fearful too. Remember when we went through that passage, what they were fearful of? What was it? Back in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. They, they were concerned, what if the Lord, what about their loved ones who have died before the Lord comes? Their loved ones who have already died. And they were thinking, Paul, are they going to miss out on something? If we who are alive are going to be caught up and be with the Lord, what about those who are already dead? And what Paul assured them of related to that question. That the dead in Christ, they'll rise first. They'll precede us, right? And they'll be with the Lord. Uh, here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, they are fearful that they themselves have missed the return of the Lord. Maybe it's happened. And they've missed it. Again, Paul assures them that they don't need to fear this. And what Paul will do to comfort them is to offer principles surrounding the second coming of the Lord and why believers should not be caught unprepared. Now, let me say this, okay? If you hold to the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, which is a legitimate position that's quite popular today. Uh, if that's your position, I'm not throwing rocks at you if that is your position. It's a legitimate position. Uh, but in the words of several different commentators on 2 Thessalonians, they've said this chapter right here is one of the places in the scripture that forced them to have to change their minds. On that position because they couldn't reconcile that with this chapter. Now, I'll say I hope the pre-trib people are right. I'm pulling for you to be right. <laughs> I hope we are raptured out before intense trouble. So I'm pulling for you. I don't agree with you anymore, but I am pulling for you that you're right and I'm wrong. But anyway, uh, but let me say this. This is not an issue to divide over. This is a secondary issue. It's not an essential issue. And all sides won't agree on this. Uh, we may disagree on the details of how and when it's going to happen, but hopefully we all agree that it is going to happen. But again, Paul's laying down some principles here that we need to understand. The first one uh, that he covers there in verses 1 and 2, false teachers can shake the confidence of believers. False teachers can shake the confidence of believers. Uh, we know Paul is writing to a very young church here, a church that he established. And he's concerned about them. Because of people that have wormed their way in and are teaching things that aren't in keeping with the scripture. We know toward the end of the first century and very much into the second century, uh, 
believers had to deal with Gnosticism. That was a major, major heresy that the church had to face. Gnosticism. That said all, all spirit is good, matter is evil, and so they, the Gnostics denied that Jesus had even come in the flesh. He was just a ghost. He was a phantom. And Jesus didn't really die on the cross uh, for us. It, you know, it was an illusion. That was one brand of Gnosticism. Uh, that really uh, attacked the truth of the gospel for the first couple hundred years. Uh, but there were other heresies too. And you know, all down through the ages, the church has continued to have to deal with false teachers. Uh, teachers who might have an element of truth about something, but they go astray and uh, they depart from the truth. You probably get knocks on your door occasionally by some of these, right? Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses. So we continue to, to battle this. Uh, and you know, the better a false teacher is, the more people he or she can lead astray. Uh, sometimes even a false teacher doesn't realize that he's false. He too has been hoodwinked. Peter talks in 2 Peter about false teachers who are more bold, though. Peter is speaking about false teachers who know that what they're teaching isn't true, and yet they do it anyway. And he talks about the harsh judgment that those false teachers will face one day. Uh, folks, if you've ever had a loved one caught up in a cult, which I haven't, but I've heard testimonies of people, they say it's heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking, the way their loved one got brainwashed and caught up in a cult. And how hard it is to get that person out. Well, at Thessalonica, somebody had tried to convince the believers that the Lord Jesus had come secretly, we would assume, and gathered the saints together to be with him, and they had all missed it somehow or another. Uh, and whoever was putting this word out had even gotten word out that the Apostle Paul in some way was sharing this, either in word or letter, that he was sharing that the Lord had already come. So what's going on in this church made up of very young Christians? It's caused quite a stir. It's caused a lot of confusion. Folks, what's the solution? We need to know the scripture, don't we? We need to know the scripture. The main offense that you're going to have to equip yourself against falsehood is to personally know the word. Be grounded in the word. Be a student of the word. That's going to help you and me more than anything else to stand firm against lies. Uh, there's an investment, though, that this is going to demand. You're going to have to invest time and commitment uh, in the study of the word not just casually reading the word for a quick devotional every day but I mean really being in the word maybe even getting some good study tools to help you and, and sinking your teeth into good bible study and it's going to take some time but it's going to be rewarding and it's going to be fruitful 
Don't flounder through your Christian life, being at the mercy of whatever somebody tells you. Be a student of the Word yourself. <clears throat> Don't allow somebody to come along and shake your confidence when it comes to the essentials of the Christian faith. Again, there's non-essentials. Uh, and Christians will always disagree over some of those non-essentials. But when it comes to the main essential doctrines of the Christian faith, we've got to be well-grounded. And you know, Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that this is what God desires to be the outcome of the Scripture. He says, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful or profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. God has given us His Word. We need to be reading it. We need to be studying it. Students of the Word. And if we are, we'll be better equipped. Well, the second thing I want you to see tonight is issues of timing. Issues of timing. Paul says there in verse 3, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the lawless one is revealed, the one destined for destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. Paul says very clearly here that two things have to happen. And he's telling them these two things haven't happened yet. So you can know that you've not been left behind. And what are the two things? First of all, there's going to be a rebellion. There's going to be an apostasy. The word there can mean a falling away from the faith or a turning cold to the faith, as well as outright rebellion to Christianity. I cannot tell you how many articles there are out there currently that are telling about very negative trends in Christianity. Lifeway, our own Lifeway of the Southern Baptist Convention has done some of this research. Pew Research has done some. A lot of other uh, companies that collect data and, and do intensive studies. And uh, you read a lot today uh, about young couples and young families who are no longer coming to church. Uh, even recently I saw an article about how Generation X, since COVID, Generation X is those aged 43 to 57. Since COVID, Generation X has dropped out of church. Nationwide. I'm talking about the big picture. They dropped. You're here? Yeah. <laughs> but it's not just the young people. Generation X, 43 to 57 people are saying, where, where is this middle-aged crowd? They're not coming to church, and they're not serving. Uh, there's all kinds of studies currently tracking trends uh, that are happening. 
And uh, there is a big time falling away. COVID sp uh, sped that up, but it was already happening. Uh, the sheer numbers are shocking. Now, obviously, in some areas like Africa, for example, Christianity is growing in leaps and bounds. Big time. But in many areas of the world, Christianity is retreating, especially places like North America and Western Europe. There's a major shift that is happening as to where Christianity is growing and where it's diminishing. I saw one article recently. The number of churches closing down in America. It's disturbing. Since 2019, more churches are closing every year than are opening. In 2019, for example, 4,500 churches closed across America while only 3,000 new churches opened. And, and that trend is accelerating every year. And while that trend is accelerating, that more are closing than are starting, those that are existing are also shrinking in size. It's not good trends. Dr. Ryan Burge, a political science professor at Eastern Illinois University, who's also a pastor, says that about one-third of the U.S.'s 350,000 Christian congregations are on the brink of extinction. Every year, he says, the pews are getting emptier and the co collection plates are getting lighter. Another study, which is from the Center for Analytics, Research, and Data, is even more bleak reports that 75 to 150 congregations are closing every single week. And it reports that it's happening in every region of America, and it's happening also in urban areas and rural areas. Folks, it's hard to deny that something troubling's going on. Is that part of the falling away? Is it part of the rebellion? I think somehow or another it is. I think it factors in. I definitely think what we're seeing in America is part of the cooling off and the turning away from Christianity that the Bible talks about. And it's a sign that we are getting closer to Christ's return. How close? I can't say. But it's getting closer. Paul is telling the Thessalonians that, that this, this one sign, they, they will know when this happens that they need to be alert. The time of Christ's second advent is closer. So that's one sign, he says. What's the second sign, he says? The man of perdition or lawlessness, the Antichrist. Now, I want you to keep something in mind. Even in the New Testament times before the end of the first century, the Apostle John writes that there are many antichrists that are already in the world, as well as the spirit of antichrist. So that's been going on for more than 2,000 years now. But what Paul is saying here is that there's going to be a major soul figure. There is going to be an antichrist. A man of lawlessness, he's called. And he's going to be revealed. 
He's going to be revealed. Now again, remember something. If you're in the pre-trib camp, you're secretly raptured out, and then all this bad stuff happens, and the Antichrist is revealed, all a part of the seven-year tribulation after the church has been gathered to the Lord. But Paul is saying here that the Antichrist coming to light happens first, along with the falling away all of which serves as a sign to believers that Jesus' coming is closer. Paul says this figure is going to exalt himself. He says here that he'll set himself up in the temple of God. Now you need to understand that the word for temple here can also refer to a people, God's people. Uh, it's not necessarily a structure. For example, Paul told the Corinthians that they are the temple now in the new covenant. Well, the Antichrist is going to set himself up in the people of God, exalting himself, displaying himself to be more important than God. Uh, others have said this implies that the temple will be rebuilt in a seven-year tribulation period. The Antichrist will go in there and take his seat. Uh, but the wording is not confined to that. If you believe that that's going to happen... Again, I'm not going to argue with you about that. Just don't use this text right here alone to support that. This text means that a figure is going to show up that claims authority over the people of God. It could include a politician or a world leader who shows up on the scene and all of a sudden he or she tries to dictate everything to Christians about what they can and cannot do. Folks, that makes this text all the more real to us, doesn't it? And close up. Because we're already seeing authority figures in the world who are trying to do this. Now, what's interesting about this figure is how Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who lived in the time between the Testaments, became a type of what this end time figure will be like. Going through Daniel, we talked some about Antiochus. Uh, let, let me read some of the stuff that he did back then because again, the reason I, I focus in on him a little bit because he's offered as a type of what the Antichrist at the end is, is going to be like. Uh, it says that... Uh, in 1st Maccabees that uh, certain renegades came out from Israel, misled many, saying let us go and make a covenant with the Gentiles around us for since we separated from them many disasters have come upon us so they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem according to Gentile custom and removed the marks of circumcision and abandoned the holy covenant they joined with the Gentiles and sold themselves to do evil. After subduing Egypt, Antiochus returned in the 143rd year. He went up against Israel, came to Jerusalem with a strong force. He arrogantly entered the sanctuary and took the golden altar, the lampstand for the light and all its utensils. He took also the table for the bread of the presence 
the cups for drink offerings, the bowls, the golden censers, the curtain, the crowns, and the gold decoration on the front of the temple. He stripped it all off. He took the silver, the gold, the costly vessels. He took also the hidden treasures that he found, taking them all. Uh, he went into his own land. He shed much blood and spoke with great arrogance. Israel mourned deeply in every community. Rulers and elders groaned. Young women and young men became faint. The beauty of the women faded. Every bridegroom took up the lament. She who sat in the bridal chamber was mourning. Even the land trembled for its inhabitants, and all the house of Jacob was clothed with shame. On every side of the sanctuary they shed innocent blood. They even defiled the sanctuary. Because of them the residents of Jerusalem, Jerusalem fled. Uh, she became a dwelling of strangers. Uh, she became strange to her offspring and her children forsook her. Her sanctuary became desolate like a desert. Her feasts were turned into mourning. Her Sabbaths into a reproach. Her honor into contempt. Her dishonor now grew as great as her glory. Her exaltation was turned in the morning. Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all people should be one people and that all should give up their particular customs. All the Gentiles accepted the command of the king. Many even from Israel gladly adopted his religion. They sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. And the king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and the towns of Judah. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land, to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings uh, in the sanctuary, to profane Sabbaths and festivals, to defile the sanctuary and the priests, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, to sacrifice swine and other unclean animals, and to leave their sons uncircumcised, they were to make themselves abom abominable by everything unclean and profane so that they would forget the law and change all the ordinances. He added, and whoever does not obey this command of the king shall die. In such words he wrote to his whole kingdom, he appointed ins inspectors over all the people and commanded the towns of Judah to offer sacrifice town by town. Many of the people, everyone who forsook the law, joined them, and they did evil in the land. They drove Israel into hiding in every place of refuge they had. Now, on the 15th day of Chislev, in the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of burnt offering. They also built altars in the surrounding towns of Judah and offered incense at the doors of the houses and in the streets. The books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to it was condemned to death by decree of the king. On and on this went. If Jewish mothers had their sons circumcised on the eighth day, he would have that baby killed, hung around the neck of the mother until the corpse rotted, and she had to wear her son until his corpse rotted, and then they took her up to a cliff and threw her off and killed her. That's the way it was under Antiochus. And again, he's used as a type in the Bible 
of this coming man of lawlessness and the way he's going to act and what he's going to try to outlaw with the people of God and dictate. So that's what's coming. Paul is saying this figure is coming and he's going to exalt himself. Uh, this is how he's going to be. He's going to be a very dangerous person for Christians. Now, again, Paul's assurance to the Thessalonians is, have you seen this yet? Answer, no. Therefore, he says, you have not missed out on the gathering of God's people that Jesus will do when he returns. Where are we again? We don't know, but we're somewhere probably in the, the first sign of growing rebellion or falling away. As far as we know, we haven't seen sign number two yet. And Paul seems to be saying here, Christians will know. We won't be sitting around thinking, you reckon this one might be who the Bible is warning us about. We'll know. Because Paul says this will be a sign to us that Christ is about to return. So those are two things he's saying haven't happened yet. And he's giving these two things as the, the basis of his assurance that he's giving them that they haven't been left behind. Now third thing I want you to see. We need to review. We need to review. Look at verse 5. He says, Do you not remember that I told you these things when I was still with you? I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want you to notice what Paul's saying here. He's saying, I've told you about all this when I was with you at some point. We need to, we need to recognize the fact Paul spent more time with some of his congregations than with others. In fact, how long was he at Ephesus? Do you remember? Yeah. Two to three years there at Ephesus. So some congregations he spent longer with. Uh, and we don't have everything written down that he taught. God has seen fit that in the canon of Scripture we have what we need. It's kind of like in the Gospel of John. Remember what John said at the end of the Gospel of John? He, he said of Jesus that if everything Jesus said and did were written down, all the books, the, the whole world could not contain all the books. Might be hyperbole, but if you stop and think, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Never been a time that he didn't exist. You think into eternity past. So if you look at it from that perspective, all that he's ever said or done, this world couldn't hold all the books. John might not be writing in hyperbole at all. The point is, we don't have everything. We have what God has determined we need to become Christians and then to grow in Christ. 
And, and Paul again is saying, I, I've told you about all this, and it shows that there is a need in the church for constant review. We need to meet together as the people of God, study the Word on our own, but also together as the people of God. We need to be students of the Scripture. In, in the words of the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, we don't need to be forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. We need to be meeting together, praying for one another, encouraging one another. And he says, all the more as we see that day approaching, you know, sometimes somebody will come to me and say, Pastor, I got a question about such and such. What am I to do here? How am I to look, look at this? And I'll think, man, if you were in church last Wednesday night, we covered this. If you would have just been here, we talked about this. You know, there's a need to be active in the church, meeting together, reviewing what God has told us in His Word. Fourth thing, lawlessness is already set in motion, but is restrained. One day, the restraint will be removed. Look at verse 6 and down through verse 8. He says, and you know what is now restraining him so that he may be revealed when his time comes. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but only until the one who now restrains it is removed. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will destroy with the breath of his mouth, annihilating him by the manifestation of his coming. Now we're not told what the restraint is. Some say it's the Holy Spirit. Some say it's the church. Some believe it's a reference to the governmental powers that are mentioned in Romans 13 that Paul says there are from God for order in society. And they would say that the Antichrist is going to throw off all civil authorities and act as a law unto himself. Bottom line, we don't know. The, the restraining force isn't named. It may be any or all of those things. Uh, so we can't be dogmatic about what the restraining force is. But I, but I think the point we are intended to take away is this. And that is namely, God holds the time in his hand. The lawless one won't be able to do what he is able to do except for the fact that God allows it. And until God allows it, it won't happen. It's kind of like what happened to Job in the book of Job. Uh, Satan attacked Job, but he could only attack Job at the level that God allowed. God had Satan on a leash. Same thing here. These things are at work now, but they're limited. The Antichrist and Satan and lawlessness are all held in check until God determines the time that they will be turned loose to do their full evil. And so I think the point we need to see, and I think, I, I think the point that uh, we can be dogmatic about from verse 7 is just that. Uh, that God will determine when this man of lawlessness is unleashed to do what he's going to be able to do. 
And then the next point we can be pretty dogmatic about, I think, is verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will destroy with the breath of his mouth, annihilating him by the manifestation of his coming. Jesus is going to come and destroy him. Read Revelation chapter 19. When Christ comes on the white stallion, who does he destroy? He destroys the evil one and all of his enemies. And you'll notice from Revelation 19, when he destroys all of his enemies, he doesn't even have to strain himself. All he has to do is speak the word, and the devil and the Antichrist and all who follow them are wiped out and forever defeated. All Christ has to do is come back and speak, and it's done. And verse 8 is telling us, after the Antichrist has been allowed to do what God's going to allow him to do, then Christ is going to come in his second advent and totally and completely destroy him. Well, fifth, until Christ destroys his enemies, he allows the lawless one to be empowered by satanic signs so that those who refuse to believe God's truth will believe lies. Look at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is apparent in the working of Satan, who uses all power, signs, lying wonders, and every kind of wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion leading them to believe what is false, so that all who have not believed the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness will be condemned. Folks, I want you to just think about the seriousness of what Paul is saying here. If you will not believe God's truth, then God will see to it that you will believe lies. God will send a strong delusion. Could that be the very reason people are believing some of the crazy things they believe today? God is already beginning to send a strong delusion, perhaps. And why is that? Because people won't believe God's truth. It's exactly what Romans chapter 1 teaches. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says in verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So you have God's truth in the gospel. You embrace it, and what does it bring about? Salvation. What's the other side of the coin? In verse 18 of Romans 1, Paul then says, but for those who suppress the truth of God and reject it, God gives them over to a debased mind and depraved passions. Why? Because they wouldn't embrace his truth. Same thing is being said here. You embrace his truth, it results in salvation. You reject God's truth, and God sends a strong delusion.
Folks, think of the seriousness of that. When people are confronted with the Word of God, it's God's Word. It's His truth. And what we do with it has very serious ramifications, either for good or for bad. A sixth thing. The Thessalonians, rather than being fearful of being left behind, can be assured by the fact that God saved them through the preaching of the gospel so that they are to therefore stand firm in the faith. Verses 13 to 15. He says, But we must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. For this purpose he called you through our proclamation of the good news so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by our letter. There's a truth here that God is able to keep his children. He knows who are his, and he's able to keep them and preserve them. It's the same thing he said in Philippians 1.6, where Paul said to the Philippians, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. Folks, God doesn't save us to forget about us and to leave us behind when he comes. When God saves us, he saves us forever. And he saves us so that we can be with him throughout all eternity. And so our response to that is to be that we are to be grateful and we are to stand firm and stand fast. Now, some lessons I want to leave you with tonight. Number one, God's people need to be grounded in God's Word and constantly review sound doctrine together. God's people need to be grounded in God's Word and constantly review sound doctrine together. Second lesson, there is an evil imposter who is to come who is empowered by Satan and will try to deceive people and rally them to himself. Thirdly, God will remove the restraint that keeps this evil person from influence and power and will finally destroy this evil one by the second advent of his son. And then lastly, to reject God's truth is to set oneself up to embracing and following lies resulting in ultimate judgment and condemnation. You need me to repeat any of those? Number two. There's an evil imposter who is to come who is empowered by Satan and will try to deceive people and rally them to himself. Is that it? 
I didn't give you too many spaces to fill in, did I? Okay. Until Christ destroys his enemies, he allows the lawless one to be empowered by satanic signs so that those who refuse to believe God's truth will believe lies. Anybody else? Folks, I, I want you to see in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians the pastoral heart of the Apostle Paul coming out. Paul is not wanting this young congregation to be shaken. He's not wanting them to be led astray or to be shaken. Uh, he's wanting them to be able to grow and stand firm. And and not live in fear, not, not fear that they nor their loved ones have missed out on something. God's people are not going to miss out on anything that God has prepared for us. We don't need to fear missing anything that God has promised to His children. It's, it's a pastor's heart, and you see that coming out here in chapter 2.